I had no leadership experience of any kind. I wasn't even really a manager in my former role, but I got so frustrated at seeing other people who were so-called leaders not leading. So that's the kind of thing I always thought about really was, I don't really know what it's like to be a leader, but if I just do things the right way, and if I work hard and I'm committed, that's a good starting point. And, and guess what? We made mistakes. I, st- I do have some regrets. And those regrets sometimes are focused on listening to other people's advice because you have doubts about yourself, taking on their advice and then thinking, why did I do that? So, you know, it's a steep, steep learning curve. Welcome to Beeline, a podcast brought to you by the Hive Change Consultancy and hosted by its CEO, Andrew Tilling. My name's Gemma Aston, and I'm part of the leadership team at the Hive. Our job is to serve leaders like you who are committed to making a positive impact. I've put together this podcast series and invited some passionate and knowledgeable change makers to help us find the Beeline the simplest way to bridge the gap between pain points and solutions, and to give you the resources to support your leadership journey. Beeline, lead the way. So my guest today on Beeline is somebody who I have a huge amount of respect for, probably because I see him as, sure, serial entrepreneur, launched businesses, sold, made, it, made an impact that way. Um, but he's somebody who's absolutely committed to walking the talk. His approach to happiness in, um, in his organization is really true to the principles that he's encouraging other organizations to take on themselves. He's the co-founder of the Happiness Index, which is the employee engagement and happiness platform. And well, I mean, our theme today is all around well-being, right? So it's all about trying to create those happy, healthy working cultures. and. Chris Hyland, the question I have for you is that entrepreneurs aren't really renowned for their happy, healthy working environment, right? I mean, it's all high stress, getting things going. Was it different for you guys when you set up? Very, very good point. (laughs) (laughs) Very good point. I mean, obviously, when you start a business, there is a huge element of grind involved. You've got to put the hours in, like... I've always kind of challenged myself in the past, which is more important, working hard or working smart. And I think yeah. probably an element of both. But I, I think the difference with this time round, because this is our second business that we've grown, well, two of us, but with my two co-founders are good university friends. This time around, for us, it was committed to having fun. And, that, and that's not just like, you know, skipping into the office or skipping uh, to home these days or, you know, it's not all about rainbows and stuff. It was just actually, we're going to do things the right way, have as much fun as we can, But yes, I mean, you know, guess what? There's also stress involved uh, when growing any kind of business. And sometimes you've got to put it in and sometimes you need your colleagues to to help put it in. So it's a commitment to happiness and commitment to uh, treating our people like like humans. Um, But guess what? It still can be a grind at times. No doubt about it. Matt Phelan who was is one of your co-founders i i saw that he he kind of was commenting on your first kind of landlords of the first rented office space that you guys had yeah. and 
you know, he, he talked about how annoyed they were to have to have to sublet their broom cupboard to two kids who turned yeah. up to work in flip flops and shorts. So yeah. were, they, were they? I mean, I imagine very happy times, but yeah. you know, you're starting something you you don't know where it's going to go. Um, what was the working culture like for you guys then? So, yeah, it's a good point. It's funny because I'm I'm 40 now, but when I started, when Matt and I started our first business, we were 26, and. For guess what? It was in a recession. So I know all about what recessions are. Um, and I think in some respects, the great thing about starting a business then was we were wonderfully naive uh, to even what a recession was and what, the, and what the business world was. So we were committed to just giving something a go. And for us, it was very much about freedom. It was freedom to make our own choices, freedom to create something without having some old school person looking over your shoulder saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. And that office was super special. Like it was a, it was somewhere in central London, um, and I think it was an accountancy office. So, yeah, when they kind of saw us, it was like, yeah, stick them upside, uh, stick them right in the top, in the roof where no one else can see them. And it would, I, we always thought about going back there and showing them what we'd achieved. But hey ho, our culture really, you know, we were twenty six, so we were young, single, and we'd go out and have drinks. So our culture was very much focused on togetherness. Um, open openness and transparency but it was still a bit of an immature culture I'd say which was we didn't really think about values and stuff back then it was just this is who we are this is what how we want to treat our people and this is the direction we want to go in so it was a good culture but nothing compared to the culture that we have now and that's just because of experience of being a leader as well so I mean you you took on a team I mean how big was your first team so, um, we, well, when we started, uh, obviously just two of us, and we grew it to 150 people over 10 years. Right. I mean, that's, that's a big team for two young guys. Just yeah, kinda... absolutely. Um, I was thinking about this the other day because, yeah, you're right. I had no leadership experience of any kind. I wasn't even really a manager in my former role, but I got so frustrated at seeing other people who were so-called leaders not leading so I can never not bring football into it, but my, my team I support is Liverpool and my, my hero was Steven Gerrard. And Steven Gerrard was known for leading by example. So that's the kind of thing I always thought about really was I don't really know what it's like to be a leader, but if I just do things the right way and if I work hard and I'm committed, um, that's a good starting point. So, of course, that evolved hugely over the 10 years and, and guess what? We made mistakes. I, st- I do have some regrets. And those regrets sometimes are focused on listening to other people's advice because you have doubts about yourself, taking on their advice and then thinking, why did I do that? So, you know, it's a steep, steep learning curve. <laughs> so you, that you've got that moment of stress that stuff's going wrong and there's an instinct that comes up, but that instinct is mixed with doubt. I know we've all done it. We then go and ask and check our thinking with other people who we assume to be better experienced, longer in the tooth, all those kinds of things. And then on acting on other people's advice and perspective, you suddenly see consequences of that that you weren't anticipating. You think, well, if I'd have gone with my instinct in the first place, then actually we'd probably be all right. Absolutely. And through the years, you learn to trust your gut, don't you? And I, you know, I think in today's modern world, all you need to do is look at LinkedIn and see how many startups there are and how many entrepreneurs. When we started in 2008, it was still a rare thing to do. 
And also we looked young. So we even had to lie to our customers about who we were. We couldn't tell them we were the founders. We had to, we had to tell, say that we're account managers. We were very aware of our age and some people saw, saw it as an advantage, but of course other people saw it as a disadvantage. So yeah, we took a lot of feedback on, some good, some not so good. But again, it's, it's kind of, you learn along the way, don't you? So you go straight to the point where you, you sell the business. I mean, that's a huge moment in any entrepreneur's life where you, where you make that first sell. I imagine then you've got another culture that's coming in and mapping over the one that you've already established. And that's going to be the one that probably sticks, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, what did that feel like? I mean, you were there for what, over a year, weren't you? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> we could spend a lot of time on this subject alone. Um, so ours was a slightly strange one because the acquirer that bought us actually also wanted to kind of breed our successful culture. So they wanted to put us in charge of the of, the, of another culture of, of the whole UK arm uh, and be part of like the global board. But when, you know, day one, when you, we were acquired and we kind of merged with another 70 odd people, when you're doing due diligence beforehand, you kind of thinking, yeah, I think there is, there's a lot of alignment here. But then you don't really get to look under the hood properly until day one. And then you realise that their culture was completely different to our culture, complete opposite, all hierarchy. You know, all the bosses were in offices, even on different floors. And we were the opposite to that. Like, we didn't have an office. Like, we were, we were approachable. We didn't believe really in hierarchy. And I think they struggled with us to start because a lot of their people were like, hang on, we've acquired you and you're trying to make these changes, but mm. what, what's that about? Whereas we had to kind of tread carefully because we couldn't say, oh, your culture's really bad. That's why we've been bought. It was more around, well, actually, you know, we want to see a brighter future and we actually want to kind of believe in people more rather than just, now you stay in your box and do your job. So it was a hell of a challenge um, and we were there for two years and even the challenge of just working multinational. Um, it was a European country. They had 150, 200 people in France, in Germany, in Spain, in the Nordics. So that was an incredible learning experience to see how all these countries are different, similar and different. You know? mm. And I think that I can, I can say this now because it's, you know, it's been a while since we left the company. We left in 2018. We thought that being acquired by a bigger business, everything would be better. You know, we thought their systems would be better, their people would be better, uh, their customers would be bigger, their financial management would be better, their culture would be better. And genuinely, all of it was the opposite. And it was because it was quite a fragmented company. It was just, it was a bit of a Frankenstein. Like companies kept getting acquired around Europe and Asia, but it wasn't a one culture company so it was a massive learning curve and I think the probably the biggest challenge was that we didn't really have time to digest and understand like you get acquired and then the next day is the big start of the earnout, which was two years for us which and of course our earnout was based on performance you know bringing the company together and hitting new targets but you're straight into it and everybody all the employees you know as owners of the business we're really happy because we just achieved like a, you know, a lifelong milestone. But everybody else in the company is unhappy because they're suddenly scared about the future. They've got uncertainty. What does that mean for me? And you say all the stuff like a politician, everything's going to be fine. But deep down, you know, you need to do some analysis. So I think 
part of the challenge was going straight from one world to another world and just having no headspace to think of how do we actually approach this it was straight into it if that makes sense yeah because i mean you've come from this whole you're at the end of a really big journey and you've given everything to that journey to bring it home and then suddenly it's like you're straight onto i mean it's like doing an iron man or something right you've just done this massive great big swim and now you've got to jump straight on a bike yeah no it, it was exactly that and i don't think it was any coincidence that when we finally left the business after 10 years and thankfully we left it in a great position and we'd, we'd achieved everything we wanted to you know the morning after I remember just like crying my eyes out which was like so not me like my wife jokes about how I can't cry I'm one of these I try to sometimes I can't do it but the morning after I just like it just so much like relief and tension and stuff came out and I just I couldn't even believe it myself but I think it was just like wow it's finally over not in a bad way or a good way it was just like the ending of it so yeah it was incredibly incredibly emotional and of course I think the best thing was we were proud that we finished on a high like we were worried about things going wrong and people not being looked after but we finished where we kind of left with our heads held high and then it was time for some time out basically so you had that moment and I mean it's a huge moment I can hear I can feel the relief (laughs) as you describe it (laughs) Um, and I really respect the leaving your head held high. Jim Collins talks a lot about level five leadership and how the mark of a level four leader is that you leave and everything falls apart, you know? And it's like, well, it, I, I was clearly a good leader because it didn't work without me. And that's not the point, right? Level five leadership is leading, leaving things in a place where the organization is strong and goes from strength to strength as you mm. exit the organization. So I can, I can really get that sense of, of pride of having you know, delivered on what needed to be done and making sure that those people are left in a in a good place. Did that influence or did that inspire the happiness index? I mean, tell us about that and what is that about? What what why the happiness index? So the happiness index first came about within this company, within the agency, as we were growing, and it really started to manifest when we got to twenty, thirty people. That number now of like 20 people in a company is a, is, a, is a magic number. You know everybody. It's like a bit, a bit of a family feel. You, you know everyone's boyfriends and girlfriends and what they're up to at the weekend. But as you get over that, it becomes really hard. And you start to feel less connected to some of the employees. And the same for customers. Like when you've got a set of 20 customers, it's easy to know them all. So I just had this idea that what if we just actually asked our people how they felt? And we always felt by the way, that we got real true answers from people down the pub on a Friday night. You know, we're in our 20s. And we just say to them, like, are you happy? And I just, I also used to love that question because they'd be like, happy? Like, you can't ask, how am I happy? You know, but you just got a real emotive answer. So we just come up with this idea to start, well, why don't we start asking all our employees once a month on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you being part of 4P's marketing, which was the agency? And it was all anonymized, you know, so no one, you could put a one if you want. And we did it. And then we did the same for customers. And then just off the back of that data, you, you get the data through. And I think our first score was like 7.5 out of 10. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder where that 7.5 is. Like, who's happier is it the senior team is it the junior team is a different department so we started building elements of how you could dissect the data and this was all in a spreadsheet to start kind of our kind of techie guy 
um, was like, hang on, why don't we put this into like a bit of a, a platform? So that's how it all originally began, which was just a real simple question of trying to understand how our, how our employees felt as we scaled. And really off the data, it transformed our company. We just presumed as, as founders and as owners that number one will be salary. Number one's going to be salary because everyone's always moaning about salary. But it was actually the third biggest thing. Number one was personal development. And we were shocked by that. We're like, oh, God, okay. You know, back then we're thinking, what's personal development? What's that? <laughs> so it, for us, it, it made us really focus on, rather than presuming to know what our people want, we asked them. And then we used that data and acted. And it, yeah, it transformed our business. I can really go with that. I mean, I remember... I mean, when I was starting out in the business environment, I've done a lot of different coaching and lots of different supporting. I've been, I've been coaching since I was 16, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, but mainly within that kind of theatre mm-hmm. environment, supporting teenagers and this kind of stuff. But I found that whole kind of personal development world, I, I, I had this big fear that none of that language was going to resonate at all within a business environment. And I genuinely felt that that business environment really needed some space for that but it was it was all about how do we go about packaging that how do we get go about communicating that when you're building a learning and development organization and support team and you know i was sitting on like personal mastery that seemed to be acceptable language it was used a lot in things like the the learning organization peter senge and fifth discipline and all that kind of thing and that seemed to be acceptable but i felt that it was, it was still just not a space i had to really watch my words now you just can't get you know can't get enough of it. I mean, particularly around you know, well-being's become such a big theme. It's become such mm-hmm. an important part of our language, um, and people are wanting to feel much more fulfilled at work. Mm-hmm. We've got a very different generation. Gen Z is have got a very open and, um, in the best use of the word, vulnerable approach to dealing with their working environments about what's what's um, acceptable, what's not, what's going to work, what's not. Um, so to actually connect and work with the with these people, we've got to treat them as people, right? Mm-hmm. Not just well, it's the classic, but that human resource. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that this has then come at a really good time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even on our own journey, a bit like to the point I mentioned earlier about listening to other people's advice. So we were known in our industry for having a great culture, but we could never quantify that what that meant. And I think a really good example of that was. We had a girl who worked for us who was super talented, um, but she could not get out of bed on time. (laughs) And we started the business nine to half five. These are your hours, nine to half five. And I was a stickler for it. If you got in at three minutes past nine, you really peed me off, you know. Um, And then I had, you know, a few conversations with her and I was like, right, she just, she's not going to get in on time. And then I had to give her like a verbal warning and every, it just felt wrong. Everything just felt wrong. I was like, and, and I just, I remember on a train home, I just reframed my thinking in, hang on a minute, it doesn't matter what time she bloody gets in. Like, if she gets in at half past nine or 10 o'clock, she can. Like, so literally, I spoke to Matt, the next day we introduced flexi time. And that was, you can start anytime between eight and 10. And we're talking 12, 13 years ago. That was quite revolutionary quite then. People were like, what, you don't mind? That was the start of us thinking, about trying to understand the humans and trying to understand that everybody's different. And some people might start at 7am. Some people might want to start at midday. 
as long as they are producing and, and as long as they are thriving in that workplace culture, that's a good place to start. So that was kind of like the path to the happiness index and really trying to understand that if you put your people first and you actually understand them individually rather than just a collective thing, which is, right, we're going to do four days a week from now on, or we're going to, you know, four days a week doesn't work because it's presuming that everybody wants to go to four days. So that was kind of the start of the journey and us trying to think, actually, let's think of them as human beings. Wow, what, what a crazy thing to think about. And then adapting to the people rather than them making them adapt to us. All right. I want to know what bad looks like in terms of, you know, an, an organization that's kind of existing, it's working, it's, it's profitable. Well, I think there's, a, there's, there's the classic stuff, which is one of the most classic ones is a lack of trust, which in my term, I would coin micromanagement. I think in many of these big companies, they're so big, they don't trust. It comes from the top, doesn't it? That person goes to this person, goes to this person, and there's a lack of trust around delivering the results. So a lot of people are looking over the shoulder virtually or, or physically trying to, are you doing this job correct? No, you're doing it wrong. There's no, there's, no empower, there's no empowerment. So I think a lot of it is to do with, with trust. Do you trust your colleagues and do you trust your, the people you work with to deliver on your role? That's a kind of, I guess, a traditional one. I'll say today, more of a modern one is... It's almost ignoring emotion in the business. So, you know, the biggest thing I've learned about the happiness index, and we have 40 plus people, is that everybody has their own personal issues with something. It might be physical health, it might be mental health, it might be family, nans, granddads being unwell. And we were discussing this as founders not so long ago. I was thinking, is it, is it, is it the type of people that we attract? Or is it something different? And of course, it's the fact that we've got this open culture where if you're not on it today, just tell us why. And we're not going to judge you for it. If I look at the Great Resignation, that is because these businesses for so long, they're measuring stuff and they're trying to understand. They're not trying to understand how you feel. They're trying to understand, are you achieving the goals to make the company better? But if you flip it the other way around, which is actually how can I make you as a person better? Of course, that's going to make the company better. So for me, the big one the last few years is as companies are ignoring people as human beings and they don't like emotion in the workplace or part of the culture. But emotion to us is absolutely everything because if something's happened outside of your work, you're going to bring it into work. A great trainer I work with, a guy called Mike Williams, always refers to this idea of discretionary effort that people come along to work and sure they're managed and they need to do what needs to be done but there's this whole huge resource of discretionary effort that people can choose to put in or not and that's only going to come in an environment where as you say that trust is there and that people are are feeling like they're being listened to and and heard and connected with and I think that's um, I think you've you really hit on something now. I think a lot of this stuff can kind of go under the radar, can't it? And people just, you know, you, you think because you're delivering on the number that you're delivering, but that's not connection with the company's mission. That's not connection with, with what it is that we're trying to achieve. And which is why I guess you've got the, the happiness bit, but you've also got the engagement bit, right? I mean, absolutely. And for us, it's actually all about neuroscience. I mean, just to explain briefly what are, platform does and what we believe in as a company in order for you 
as an individual to thrive in your company, you need to, there's certain, certain things you need to measure which are focused on the head and the heart. So the head is about engagement, which is about clarity, it's around purpose, it's around direction. That's what companies have been measuring for a long time. But the heart piece for us, which we call the happiness, is very much around energy, relationships, psychological safety is a huge one, trust. But this is all underpinned by neuroscience, and that is the key. Because if you've got an opinion about stuff, which we did for many, many years, people can throw opinions out. It's subjective. Well, actually, when you can back it up with science, go, actually, this is what neuroscience says, and this is why you need to measure these certain different things, because actually, we're human beings. And as human beings, we go through all sorts of emotions at different times. So for us, the fact that we've got our, our platform is now backed by neuroscience has been a game changer because many people get in touch with us in the past and believed what we said, but couldn't get their, their CEOs or their bosses to sign off because they'd be like, right? that's the thing. It was like, yeah, but whereas now we can say, and you've got any doubt, here's the science. The proof, the proof has been done. Like we call it our methodology. So that was the game changer for us. And we only launched that two years ago. I think that's huge. I mean, the consensus piece, I, I, I talk about a lot. It's, you know, it's a big deal. It's, it's a key part of all the training that we give around sales. It's a key part in, in getting any program over the fence and getting something engaged. Because if you're going to do culture change, right, you need, you need a lot of different people on board to get that signed off. And I genuinely think that while there are an, is an extraordinary number of very seasoned experienced great level five leaders as jim collins would say out there i think that there is a big void in terms of examples of great leadership for a lot of that people who are now in positions of influence who look to what does a good leader look like and i think about all my previous bosses and how i've been micromanaged in the past and all those kinds of things well that must be good leadership so i'm going to doubt my instinct and I'm going to try to do it and emulate Absolutely. it in the way that more senior people have. Now, when you throw something neuroscience into the mix that says, hey, look, the way if you model it that way, actually, you're going to get these results. And it kind of goes, hang on a minute. I know this, right? My mm -hmm. instinct knows this. So why aren't I doing it? But it's really hard to do that when that culture is not supporting it. So it seems to me like you've got this vehicle now that you can really empower people who do want to make a positive impact on their cultures with the tools, the insights, the knowledge and the data to be able to build that business case. And to go back to one of your original points, the timing is now. Ever since COVID, the world has woken up to this thing around mental health and well-being. I just personally love to see the message around mental health spread more and more because Everyone's got to deal with this stuff, like day to day. So for us as a business, every day that we kind of move forward is another day step in the right direction where you talked about generations. The, the generation, the Y generation, the Z generation, the millennials, they believe in this stuff more than maybe your traditional CEO. You know, the average CEO in the UK is 55. I mean, some of them do believe in it and we work with some great CEOs, but the majority don't. So every day that we move forward is another good day for us because more of these people that believe in what we do move into senior positions. So yeah, it's taken time. Um, and when we started seven, eight years ago, which is crazy now. Um, and you know, we literally had some people laugh us out the room, happiness, like, oh, 
no chance. Whereas now it's you see it in every brand's marketed. It's crazy. Yeah, you want to, if you want to solve a problem with recruitment, you need to solve your problem with retention first, right? It's, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you, you need to kind of keep people there. All right, and so if we've got people who are more engaged and they're happy at work, I've no doubt you've seen it. What does it look like? What it looks like is it is creating a thriving culture. So when people are super happy and super engaged, there's an incredible togetherness. And what we really talk about is an aligned energy. You know, again, what the Great Resignations taught us is that there's many leaders and many managers out there who have had a shock resignation in the last few years. Um, and, I th- and they thought this person was flying and, and they were really doing really well. And suddenly I'm handing my notice and it's like, wow, where did that come from? So I think what a thriving culture looks like is a real committed and highly energized culture, which is not only clear about the direction, companies have got clear direction right for many, many, many years, but they haven't necessarily got, you know, we used to talk about a bit of a sat nav example, like engagement is like where you put it in Google Maps, but how you get there is the happiness part. Mm. So for us, it's having that really connected, really energetic, and of course, a genuine listening company. Like it's not once a year, it's continuous listening, trying to genuinely understand how your people feel. Um, and the companies that we've seen, we work with, have done it the best. They're flying, they're absolutely flying. Of course, they've, all, they've always got problems because every business in the world or every organization has challenges, um, but they seem to be doing things right. And the people there are much more committed and loyal to, the, or to those organizations as well. It seems to me like control is one of the big blockers there. It's like, you know, as a leader, if I'm trying to control everything and make things work and keep things pegged and keep things pinned, I'm only going to get what I'm asking for. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be that if you've created that engagement and you've got that clarity of direction, you're really setting people free to to own that journey and and to deliver that as a team for themselves. Yes, uh, and even on my own development, even the challenge with that sometimes is creating that space for people to step into and develop themselves can also be really scary for them. You know, it's trying for us, it's always trying to buy that, trying to get that balance right around this is where you are now. We want to get you to this place here. We can give you some tips around how you do that, but really you kind of need to find your own path. And some people need more hand-holding and some people need less hand-holding. But I think what you get back as as an employer or as a leader is once they go on that journey and they achieve it, they kind of feel a bit invincible almost. Whereas, and that's my, my lesson from my old company, I was probably a bit too controlling. I was like, this is what you're going to be measured on. This is what you need to do. Now, please go and execute it. Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say I was a micromanager, but um, I was maybe just a bit... I work with people a bit closer, whereas now people have to get, I've got you to get used to my style a little bit, which is clear direction. I believe in you. And then it's a bit more hands off and they're like, oh, okay. Oh my God. <laughs> my team work remotely. So, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, can't even begin <laughs> to, to micromanage. There's just no way. No. It's like, no. so, I mean, the, tr- the trust absolutely has to be there. Uh, but I, I kind of figure that if you give them the tools, Give them the target, give them the training, get all that bit 
sorted so they're ready to rock and roll then the best you can do is kind of support them and 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 create a space where they're reporting back and owning what they're doing and you've got that accountability piece right i mean am i missing yeah. anything when i think about my role as a leader in, at the happiness index i'm always thinking really of two things which is how do i get people to be incredibly motivated within their role but also how do i get people to feel inspired by being part of the company and for me they're two different things which is this is how you can contribute to being brilliant at your role and helping the company but so for instance you know we're just about to start work with a company called ecology who are absolutely brilliant um, and they're all about um, planting trees and being you know um, being great for the environment and being carbon neutral well one thing that's super important to us as a company is being a force for good so at the next company update, we're now going to start sharing with people um, how many trees we're going to be planting. And, and, and we've, I've told two people and they're like, wow, that's amazing. And for me, that's super important. You can't just feel connected to doing your job. You've got to understand that, especially people in our business, that we're doing the right things and we're trying to make a positive impact on the world. And if they've got ownership of that, that's not corporate doing something right that's us doing something that's a, yeah that's a big deal right i mean there's a, there's a lot of people you've got a generation who have been who have grown with the recognition of a climate crisis have grown with the recognition that there are cultural imbalances have grown recognizing they are part of that solution and yet don't have a strong enough circle of influence to really make a contribution and if you can provide them with that vehicle surely that's got to be a source of some strong discretionary effort right yeah a hundred percent and when you're under pressure sometimes the force for good stuff takes a back seat and it's only when i've actually been on holiday recently and you get the time to relax and reflect i'm like oh, we need to do this because we want we want to become a b corp um, uh, B Corp is an amazing movement which is all about people, profit and planet and this is part of that road to becoming a B Corp and actually when I started spending some time in it I couldn't believe how energised I was and then all I was then thinking was if I feel like this imagine how everybody else is going to feel about it so yeah, completely agree You've talked about on your own journey dealing with challenges of letting go with a team you've, dealt, you've talked about when, you've, when you're starting to scale and you move from that 20 to suddenly a lot more and trying to keep your organization on track as you go through that and, and maintain some sense of culture, all of these things have helped make that positive impact. What would you say was the biggest obstacle that you've, over, that you've had to overcome in order to deliver positive impact? Um, so I think for me, it was trying to convince employees and investors and customers that we can create a commercially viable great company and do things brilliantly along the way that was probably the biggest challenge and a bit like your point right at the start which was around entrepreneurs and startups and actually is that synonymous with happy and engaged employees absolutely not you know I think the biggest challenge we've had, which is convincing ourselves and also convincing um, employees, customers, the market, investors, 
that we can grow a fantastic business and do things the right way by treating our human uh, employees like human beings and making a positive impact. And it has been hard, um, but thankfully we're in a we're in a brilliant place now. Touchwood. Um, so that's probably been the biggest challenge. You you treat them like human beings, but you call them by animals, right? You got <laughs> what's the name of your your guys? What, Quackers. Quackers. That's yeah. it. Those so, extraordinarily cute little things. Yeah, and do you know what's just another example? Like I knew from um, my last company that people like to feel part of the company and a sense of belonging. And a sense of belonging is naming uh, your people. So you know. Google would say Googlers, for instance. So I really wanted to bring something in and we just opened it up on a company day. We were like, right, everyone's going to vote. Everyone's going to submit which, which, what they think it should be. We're going to put it on a big screen. And someone said quokkas and everyone's like, what the hell are quokkas? And they're basically like unofficially the happiest animal in the world. If you, if you Google it after, you'll see. And everybody was like, yes, that is it. We need to be quokkas. So the people, the people spoke. And uh, we are now known as Quokkas. It's so good. Immediately, you know, every time I see it come up, it's kind of like, you know, we, yeah. we, we need that. We're still forming that. It's still <laughs> flo- floating around in the head. All right. So so let's, let's kind of get this super clear then. Make sure that we do our delivery. I'm a leader. I'm looking to create some change in my organization. I'm aware that we are kind of borderline toxic, but it's mostly micromanagement. It's stress. While we are kind of performing and doing okay, I know that we are facing mass resignation, we've got issues with retention, everybody's looking, you know, how do I go from there to having that engaged workforce that is that has got a sense of ownership, that are delivering, that are feeling happy and mm-hmm. engaged at work? So I'll try and keep it short and sweet. <laughs> um, the first thing for us is trying to understand why you'd even work with us as a company. So the first thing we'd, we'd be like, what are you trying to achieve? Like, what's the kind of North Star? Like, where do you want to get to? If you had to imagine, if you had to vision what your culture would be in three years, what does that look like? And then what we do is we've developed a thing called a cultural assessment, which measures um, four components of the head and four components of the heart. And it's like a cultural audit. So the first thing we do with any company is because it's, everything's data driven. Um, we don't go and there and go, mm, we think you need to improve this. We we send a, a cultural assessment out to all your employees. And from there, that will give us the guide to what your strategy should look like over the next three years. And I think one of the biggest things that we found is so, so, so important is that you need to be open with your employees. You need to be You need to be transparent and actually show that you're not perfect and you need to take them on the journey. I'm, you know, Back in the day, I was amazed how many times a company might do a cultural assessment, the results might not be good and they retreat back into their shell and do nothing. We're actually by sharing that actually, okay, well, we've had the results, we're really unhappy about it, but this is our commitment to how we're gonna improve it. So we're gonna set this up, we're gonna do another survey in three months time. So that's what we really do. We map out the big picture, which is like a three year plan and it's, but it's fed off our first culture assessment, which tells us where you need to improve. And that might be, um, you need more inspiration. It might be personal development. It might be well-being. all these different metrics. So that's kind of a typical way of how we take leaders forward. That's 
so super clear. I love that point around the transparency. It's about taking your people on a journey, listening to them, and then focus on specific things to help improve a culture. And that's for us driving towards what we call a thriving culture. It's such a simple thing. If I'm sitting there and I'm going, I need to get out of here, I need to get out of here, you know, CV open in another window for every time that nobody's looking. But something happens that makes me feel like it's getting better. And when I reflect after a few weeks, I'm seeing that things are improving, that there's been one or two comments and there's been a few moments of smiles and that tension lifts because it's moving in the right direction. I'm just gonna spend much less time on that window with that CV, right? Absolutely, and, and I would say the most important aspect of any of this, because we've had people ask us in the past, what industries do you target? We don't, we work, we work with the right people. And if the board or the CEO is not bought into that approach, it will fail. And we work with some brilliant companies that have held their hands up and be like, we know we're not perfect, but we know the only way to create an amazing culture is to be open and transparent and actually to accept that things, in order for things to get better, we also need to know things we're not very good at. What do you do to stay happy? Oh God, um, I mean, all the usual stuff, physical health, well, it's not usual to some people, I guess, but I like to stay fit. I like to uh, practice physical and mental health and I like to be busy and I feel very, I think I really annoy my wife sometimes because I'm one of these people that when I'm on holiday, I can't wait to get back. Like I just, I love, I love what I do. I'm very lucky that I can help lead a company that which I know works, I wholly, wholeheartedly believe in. Um, so I love what I do. And, and outside of that, it's, it's spending time with my family, with my friends. I think my family get bored of my favorite word, which is balance. For me, everything's about balance, friends, family, work, all the above so yeah I'm, I'm pretty i'm pretty normal i guess outside of outside of the happiness index <laughs> well you're certainly extraordinary within it chris i mean all from all of us at the hive we're so so you know proud to be you know one you know working with you guys and and being part of the journey in some small way in you know, you, you guys have been very successful with crowdfunding as well, which we fully celebrate. And if any of you got an opportunity to, to invest or be part of the, the work that's going on at the Happiness Index, I highly recommend that you take it because, you know, watching your journey, it's been such an extraordinary privilege. So I just want to say, you know, thank you for everything that, that you do. Thank you to you and, you know, all the quackers. Um, and thank you so much for taking your time on this podcast. It's been an absolute joy. My pleasure. And Andrew, I always enjoy spending time with you. So ditto. Thank you very much. This episode marks the end of the first series of Beeline. We'll be back in the new year with a great lineup of changemakers for series two. In the meantime, look out for our bonus seasonal special in mid-December when Andrew and guests discuss the biggest, most inspirational takeaways from this series and share some potentially cringeworthy horror stories from their professional pasts. From all of us at the Hive Change Consultancy, happy holidays. If you're interested to know more or could do with a reminder about today's episode or any of the other episodes in this series of Beeline, I've collated some notes, links and resources for you to explore and download at 
www.consultthehive.com forward slash beeline. The Hive Change Consultancy provides radically effective training, coaching and facilitation that enables a dynamic shift in leaders, sales teams and entire organisational cultures. Get in touch today for an informal chat with one of our team. My name's Gemma Aston and you've been listening to Beeline. Lead the way.